of the eight gates in the walls of the modern city of Jerusalem, only St. Stephen's Gate opens eastward. The gate opens up to the Mount of Olives. It's interesting, the ancient gate was recently redesigned to allow cars to travel in and out. The gate gets its name from a tradition that Stephen was stoned nearby. And how appropriate to name the only gate opening out of the city after Stephen. For it was his martyrdom that caused early Christianity to spread. Jesus had ordered his disciples to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. Yet as late as the end of Acts chapter 7, the Christians were content to hang out at home. But with the stoning of Stephen, Jerusalem was no longer a safe place. Rabbi Saul, instigator of Stephen's stoning, began to wage a war against the church. In Acts chapter 8, God uses persecution to jumpstart evangelism. And among those who launched out was another deacon, a man named Philip. He moved up the road into the hills of Samaria and he preached Jesus to the locals. And amazing things happened. Philip healed the lame and cast out demons. Miracles were happening in Samaria. And this attracted the attention of a Samaritan who was no stranger to demons. History refers to him as Simon Magus or Simon the Magician. He had consorted with demons. He was a sorcerer, a wizard, a witch doctor, if you will. And we start with Simon Magus in chapter 8, verse 9 of the book of Acts. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. Simon obviously had an ego, claiming to be someone great. But apparently he had backed it up in certain ways. For Luke notes, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the great power of God. Either through demonic power or maybe through sleight of hand, Simon was able to dazzle the crowd. The Samaritans were ignorant of spiritual matters and so by default, they attributed Simon's amazing powers to the hand of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, whether Simon's faith was sincere or bogus, we're not sure. But for one thing is certain, he was impressed by Philip's miracles. Realize sorcery is the practice of tapping into a spiritual power apart from God. And Simon had been a sorcerer. He had been a pagan who had relied on nature and demons and astrology. He claimed psychic powers. You could say he was the Harry Potter of Samaria. According to Simon, he was in touch with primal forces. He had envied power regardless of its source. I'd imagine much of his so-called power was nothing but illusion 
and deception and maybe sleight of hand. Perhaps he had a few magic tricks up his sleeve. It could also have been the result of demons working in his life as well. How he did what he did, we don't know. But one thing's for sure. He was amazed at Philip's miracles. For he recognized that they were real. They had no other explanation than the hand of God. Simon knew how to create illusions and deceive a crowd. That's why he could see that Philip was legit. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Peter and John were representatives of the church. These apostles were sent to validate the legitimacy of this revival that was sweeping through the town of Samaria. Of course, if we stopped right here, we would end up confused. For doesn't verse 12 say that the Samaritans were already saved? And isn't every believer in Jesus indwelled by the Holy Spirit? So what of the Spirit did they receive from Peter and John? Well, verse 16 explains what these Samaritan believers were missing. For as yet, he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In Acts chapters 1 and 2, we discuss three experiences that a person can have with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with us before our conversion, convicting us of sin, pointing us to the Savior. He comes to dwell in us at the point of our conversion. He takes up residence in our hearts. But he also wants to fall upon us with spiritual power. This often occurs after a person comes to Christ. This is why some Pentecostals call it the second blessing. The Bible calls it the baptism or the filling of the Holy Spirit. See, just as a person who's baptized in water, is immersed in the liquid. Likewise, a person baptized in God's spirit is engulfed or soaked in the Holy Spirit's power. Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? You've probably heard the hymn, mercy drops round us are falling, but for the showers we plead. The showers of blessing are the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's like a thunderstorm of living water. It's like sitting in a dunk tank at the Hallelujah Fest when all of a sudden faith hits the lever and you're suddenly in over your head in the Holy Spirit. Well, see, here's what happened in Samaria. People were saved. They were baptized as Christians. This is what's meant by the phrase baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They were baptized as Christians. But before Peter and John arrived, they had no knowledge of this second blessing. The Spirit was dwelling in them, but he had yet to come upon them. They needed the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He had yet to fall upon the believers. Thus, verse 17, then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Apparently, Peter and John explained that God had more for these new Christians. There was more to the Spirit's work in their life, not just a transformed life, but an empowered life. And you know, there's more for you too. God wants to fill you and baptize you with the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse, well, 
before we move on, it was important to note, too, that Peter came to Samaria. It was Peter that came to Samaria. And this was very important. You remember back in Matthew 16, verse 19, Jesus had made a promise to Peter. You remember what it was? I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And it's interesting, Peter became the doorman that unlocked the gospel to each new racial group. Peter was there at Pentecost when the Jews came into the family of God. He was there in Samaria on this journey when they received the power of the Holy Spirit. And he will be in Caesarea when the Gentiles first put their faith in Christ. Peter was the continuity that God used to show that we are all one church. Well, verse 18. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to notice, Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given. What did he see? I mean, that means that there had to be something discernible that accompanied the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Was it speaking in tongues? Could have been. Was it the gift of prophecy? Perhaps. 1 Corinthians 14 explains that speaking in an unknown tongue often occurs when believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. Often, but not always. Tongues is a means of praise, and tongues could have been the outward demonstration that Simon witnessed here. But whatever the sign was, Simon wanted the power. Now, I'm not a magician, but I've been told by other magicians that magicians sometimes sell their tricks to one another. Perhaps that's why Simon thought he could purchase the Holy Spirit's power. He saw people speaking in tongues or them prophesying, and he thought, wow, that's a cool trick. I'd like to buy that for my repertoire. Well, Peter frowned on Simon's suggestion that he could purchase the Holy Spirit's power. And this is where we get what's called the sin of simony. It's the attempt of purchasing the gifts and favors of God with money. In the Middle Ages, ecclesiastical offices, church posts, and even forgiveness of sin, the selling of indulgences was sold by the Pope and the Roman hierarchy for a monetary price. It was an example of the sin of simony. And of course, the sin of simony is still around. You know, in some churches today, positions and influence are basically doled out to the biggest tithers, to the largest donors. Folks are able to buy spiritual authority. This should never be. God's gifts are just that, gifts. If we could buy his gifts with money or even with good works, we would cheapen them. God's favor is not for sale. The Greek word for spiritual gifts is charismata or charis, grace, grace gifts. The Holy Spirit's empowerment is prompted by grace, not sold for gold or for good works. Well, verse 20, but Peter said to him, your money perish with you. Because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Peter's pretty clear, isn't he? The ministries and the power of God's spirit are not for sale. 
Peter says, you have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. You know, usually we think of envy as materialism rather than as a spiritual sin. I mean, we, we're, we're very aware of coveting our neighbor's new car or their nice house or perhaps their, their boat or whatever. But it's also possible to be envious of another person's ministry, even of spiritual gifts, as Simon was envious of Philip. Why does she get to teach Bible studies? Well, all I'm asked to do is cook meals for sick people. Or what qualifies him to be an elder in the church? Why not me? It's jealousy. We need to guard against spiritual envy. This was the sin of Simon of Samaria. As Peter said, he was poisoned by bitterness. Don't let that happen to you. Verse 24, then Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. Now the Bible doesn't tell us what happened to Simon, but according to tradition, it wasn't pretty. He soured. He became a leading heretic and an opponent of the early church. In fact, they say it was this Simon who founded a belief known as Gnosticism. This would be the heresy that Paul would refute in the book of Colossians and that John would address in his epistles. There are also reports that this Simon went mad and ended up dying by burying himself alive. I don't know about that, but I do know that bitterness and jealousy can become a deep pit from which there is no escape. Let's guard our hearts against envy of any sort. So when they, that is Peter and John, had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. The Jerusalem church, the first church, the 12 apostles, had now put their stamp of approval on the spiritual awakening that was occurring in Samaria. The gospel had come to the Samaritans as well. Imagine how exciting this was for Philip. He was on the cutting edge of the Great Commission. He's riding a spiritual wave when he receives some strange orders. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And notice the next words. This is desert. I mean, the road to Gaza, this was like Interstate 16 that runs from Macon to Savannah. You ever driven that road, Interstate 16? There is not a more barren, boring, backwoods road, stretch of highway on the planet. Understand, Philip was being asked by God to leave behind a spiritual revival. Imagine this now, souls are getting saved, miracles are happening, a church is blossoming of which Philip is the leader. Samaria was where the action is. Yet now Philip is told to go to an undisclosed location on a lonely highway to nowhere. This move just didn't make sense. Yet Philip obeyed. Verse 27, so he arose and went. Apparently celebrity status, a large ministry, 
wasn't Philip's goal. His ambition was obedience. He wanted to please his Lord. Philip was a servant. Remember, he was a deacon. He was certainly a deacon at heart. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. Now several facts emerge about this Ethiopian. First, he was a eunuch. In oriental courts, a queen's male servants and her male cabinet members were often castrated to protect her against sexual advances. Any hanky-panky going on in the palace. This man was a eunuch for that reason. Second, he had clout, or as we're told, great authority. The word Candace or Candace may have been a title. It literally means royal woman. This man reported to the queen herself. Apparently, he was Ethiopia's secretary of commerce. Third, this man was hungry for righteousness. He had traveled over 200 miles across Egypt, across the hot sands of Sinai to Jerusalem, to the holy city, looking for spiritual answers. But now he was headed home, disappointed. All he had to show for his pilgrimage was the Gideon Bible he'd taken from the drawer in his hotel room. And that's what he was reading when Philip approaches. So Philip ran to him. Now notice Philip's enthusiasm. He ran to him. Our English word enthusiasm comes from a Greek word, by the way, in theos, or full of God. Did you know that's what real enthusiasm is? It's being full of God. Philip here is filled up with the Holy Spirit. And as Philip approached the Ethiopian, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. Understand what's going on when the Holy Spirit leads you to share your faith with another person. Understand this. You see, if God is prompting you, you can be sure that God is also working on the other end of the conversation. He's also working in the other guy. The Spirit is on both ends of this connection. The angel told Philip to go to Gaza. Now the Spirit is priming the heart of the Ethiopian. He's reading a Bible out loud, no less. And Philip recognizes he's reading from Isaiah. In fact, the scripture he's reading speaks prophetically of Jesus. And Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? How's that for an invitation? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. By this point, I'm sure Philip realizes that his encounter with this Ethiopian is being orchestrated by God. In fact, the place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Philip couldn't have asked for a better launching pad for the gospel. The Ethiopian was reading Isaiah 53. He was pouring over this famous prophecy that predicted the suffering servant. 
that Jesus would be like a lamb led to the slaughter, that he would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. It's the clearest, Isaiah 53, is the clearest description of the sacrifice of Jesus in the whole Old Testament. And that's what this eunuch was considering when Philip came upon him. And so the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. What a divine setup. Obviously, God wanted this man to be saved. In fact, I think it's a setup when anyone gets saved. We come to God. Why? Because he draws us. Sometimes we say we found God, but actually he found us. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Now, the road to Gaza is desert. Water there is scarce. Apparently, they passed a brook or maybe a flash flood, a little water runoff or whatever. And the guy wanted to be baptized. And we assume from this episode that baptism in the early church was full immersion. If Philip sprinkled the Ethiopian, a canteen would have done the job. But he knew he needed a body of water. He wanted to be fully immersed. And so he said, look, there's some water. There's a stream. There's a brook. There's a pond. So they went down into the pond. Yet notice again the Ethiopian's question in verse 36. Notice his question. He asks, what hinders me from being baptized? Well, then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I'll never forget one of our Calvary Chapel baptisms. It was years ago. It was at an apartment swimming pool there in the little village of Stone Mountain. A woman and her daughter had gotten saved, and they were being baptized that day. She warned me in advance that her husband might be there. He was a pretty tough guy, lived a rough life. She said he'd never been to church, hadn't been to church in over a decade. But she said she might, he might come for my baptism. Well, I had just baptized her daughter, and I was just about to dunk the woman when suddenly I heard splash. I looked up, and the man, the husband, had jumped into the swimming pool with his clothes on. As a matter of fact, in retrospect, I don't think he took his shoes off. Tears were streaming down his face as he waded across that pool to me. And I'll never forget his question. I was right out of Acts chapter 8. He looks up at me and he says, what do I need to do to be baptized? And I quoted Philip to him. If you believe in Jesus with all your heart, you may. It was right out of the book of Acts, right out of what we're reading tonight. And I'll never forget his reply. He said, I believe with all my heart. And I baptized him and his wife together. It's wonderful. There wasn't a dry eye in the house, trust me. It's wonderful. Well, I like Philip's response to the Ethiopian's question. If you believe with all your heart. Understand, salvation is by faith, but that belief has to come from your heart. Remember James chapter 2, verse 19, 
There the apostle writes this, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. The demons mentally acknowledge the facts about God. They believe with their heads. But do you think they're going to be demons in heaven? You think they're, they've been saved? Absolutely not. To believe with your heart is to pledge your allegiance. It's to change sides. It's to join up with God. It's faith that embraces a new way of life. And saving faith is not head faith, it's heart faith. Do you have heart faith? Do you believe with all your heart? Philip is careful not to water down the prerequisites for baptism. The Ethiopian needs to check his sincerity. Are you sincere? Do you trust him with all your heart? Verse 38. And so he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. They went down into the water, the pond, the brook, the stream, and he baptized him. But this wasn't the end of the story for either Philip or the Ethiopian. This African official went home and apparently shared his faith with the people. This Ethiopian brought Christianity to the African continent. Did you know that even today there's a vibrant Christian community that still exists in Ethiopia that can trace its roots to this eunuch? It's interesting to me that a black African was one of Christianity's very first converts. And what happened to Philip? Well, now when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing, but Philip was found at Azotus. Apparently, God had a little rapture practice. <laughs> he did. We're told the Lord caught Philip away. And the Greek word used for caught is harpazo, which means to snatch, to snatch up. It's the same word that's used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, to describe the rapture of the church. The Lord snatched up Philip, and he found himself in Azotus, a coastal town some 35 miles north of the road to Gaza. It was obviously a miracle of transportation. And then verse 40, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. And I don't blame him. I love Caesarea. It is so beautiful. It's right there on the Mediterranean. It's the very, very first day in Israel, we always go to Caesarea and we stand there against the seashore. It's just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful setting. And so Philip, he preached in all the different places until he got to Caesarea and he said, man, this is where I want to live, right here. Beautiful seaside town of Caesarea. Later in Acts chapter 21, Paul and his buddies, they're going to hang out in Caesarea for a while. They're at Philip's house. Philip and his four daughters lived in Caesarea. What an adventure life was for Philip. You know, life is a thrill ride when you love others and you follow God and you dare to share your faith. No telling where God will take you and what he'll do with you. Only one thing better than going to heaven, you know what it is? Taking somebody with you. Well, chapter 9 begins. Then Saul 
still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He's still at it. Rabbi Saul has overseen the stoning of Stephen, and he's waging war to silence Christians, yet his venom had only fanned the flame of their witness. As Christians fled the persecution, they took the gospel with them, and they started spreading it everywhere. Believers had moved from Jerusalem now up the coast of Caesarea into the hills of Samaria. Now churches are springing up in Damascus, 140 miles northeast. And Saul takes his rage on the road. He went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The first believers were Jews under Jewish authority. So Saul seeks priestly permission to round up the believers and imprison them in Jerusalem. And notice how Saul refers to Christianity. He calls it the way. I like that. Christianity isn't a moral code. It's not just a system of beliefs. It's not just a doctrinal statement. It's not a set of religious observances. It's a way of life. It is the way. The only way. Stephen's testimony apparently had gotten under Saul's skin. All he could think about now was stamping out the message that had infuriated him so. He hated everything Christian. Today, Saul's attack on Christianity would qualify as a hate crime. Several years ago, two Northeastern University professors did a study on hate crimes in America. They concluded 60% of the perpetrators of hate crimes are thrill seekers. They're just insecure people trying to be macho, trying to bully people around. 35% are turf defenders. They throw rocks at your house when a family of a different race moves onto the block. Again, again, they're bullies, but they're sort of defending their turf. But 5% of the perpetrators of hate crimes have deliberately constructed a false theology to rationalize their prejudice to justify their bigotry. These people think they're doing God a favor by persecuting the group that they hate. These are the most violent and the most lethal haters. And understand, this was Saul. He thought he was doing God a favor by persecuting the church. Pascal once said, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction." Saul was zealous for God, but his zeal was without knowledge. You know, it's easy to hate someone that you don't understand, that you don't know. But that's about to change for Saul, for he's about to make a new acquaintance. Verse 3. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he, boom, fell to the ground. Now, some artists depict Saul on horseback. A light from heaven knocked him out of the saddle, literally. Whether Saul was on horseback or on foot, he was definitely riding his high horse. It was a long fall to the ground for a proud rabbi like Saul. This pompous Saul was headed to Damascus to knock off Christians. Instead, he's the one who gets knocked off. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
You know, we learned that that voice from heaven was Jesus. But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? Instead, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Implied is that an attack on the church was really an attack on Jesus himself. You can't pick on Kathy Adams and not get me involved. You pick on Kathy Adams and I'm going to come hunting you. And likewise, you can't hurt the bride of Christ without upsetting the groom. Jesus takes it personally when his people are persecuted. Verse 5, and Saul said, who are you, Lord? I love it. I love this scene. One of my favorite John Wayne movies is entitled Big Jake. You ever seen, you ever seen Big Jake? Anybody? So raise your, don't be ashamed. Good, good. In the final scene, the villain, Richard Boone, he gets shot. And Boone looks up at John Wayne and he says, who are you? And John Wayne answers, Jacob McCandles. And he's surprised. He says, I thought you was dead. And John Wayne says, not hardly. You want to see it? You want to see it? You come close, mister, but no cigar. Who are you? Jacob McCandles. I thought she was dead. Not hardly. Boom. Isn't that great? They just don't make them like that anymore. Hey, Saul thought Jesus was dead. But big Jesus now knocks Saul off his high horse, and he says, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus. I thought you was dead. Not hardly. I love it. Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You know what goads were? Goads were cattle prodders. They were the sharp pokers. When the cattle went astray, they were used to get the cattle back in line. And this is a good illustration of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. He brings conviction to us. We start to stray from God and from the Spirit, and he pokes at you, doesn't he? In different ways. He gets your attention. He keeps you from escaping by his prodding. Saul was trying to stamp out publicly the very thing that haunted him privately. Stephen's joy, his peace in the throes of death, the glory of God that radiated from him was everything in life that Saul wanted. Yet Stephen obtained it apart from Judaism. His savior was a man that Israel had labeled a blasphemer. But Saul couldn't shake his testimony. God's spirit kept prodding his conscience. It's interesting, usually we think of Christianity's most vocal critics, most violent opponents as the hardest nuts to crack. And yet, in reality, they're the ones who may be closest to salvation. If they didn't sense the Spirit's prodding and the Spirit's conviction, they would be ambivalent. 
But like Saul, their resistance is actually their way of kicking against the goads. Verse 6, and so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And here's proof of the genuineness of Saul's conversion. His first cry, Lord, what do you want me to do? Too many people start out their Christian experience with the demand, Lord, here's what I want you to do. That wasn't his attitude at all. You know a person is saved when their desire is to serve. Lord, what do you want me to do? Hey, this angry Saul, he melts, he breaks. He's trembling now. He's seen the light. Jesus is alive. He's met him. And if Jesus rose from the dead, it means Jesus is Lord of life. Are you fighting against God tonight? Are you kicking against the goads? If so, you can't win. It's best to surrender. And when Saul does surrender, Jesus gives him his marching orders. Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Notice Jesus instructs us one step at a time. This is so important for you to know. Before Saul gets step two, he first has to obey step one. Once he gets into the city, then he'll be told the next step. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. God's revelation to Saul worked like a camera. As soon as that bright light from heaven hit the film, the shutter closed. And it didn't reopen until the image had had time to develop. It took three days. God blinded his new servant Saul and gave him three days in the dark room, so to speak, so that the memory of the light of Christ would be forever etched in the recesses of his mind. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. Again, God is at work on both ends of the equation, isn't he? He's whittled Saul down to size, and now he's preparing a messenger to speak to Saul. And Ananias said, here I am, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight. This street still exists in Damascus. It's the main east-west thoroughfare in the city center. He continues, and on the street, inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And here's another proof of the genuineness of Saul's conversion. When you truly meet Jesus, you'll want to talk to him. You'll want to pray. Well, the Lord continues his instructions to Ananias in verse 12. And in a vision, Saul has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And you can understand Ananias' reluctance, can't you? Saul had a reputation. This would be like God calling you to witness to the very person who's murdered your family. 
I mean, that's how the church saw Saul. He was a terrorist. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. God had chosen Saul, not vice versa. And from the beginning, God had a message for Saul. He would preach to Gentiles and to kings and to Jews and in that order. Everything in Saul's life prepared him for this mission. He was born a Jew, yet he was raised in the Gentile city of Tarsus. He spoke Greek and Hebrew. He was a Roman citizen and a Jewish rabbi. He was familiar with Greek culture and Roman law and Hebrew theology. Paul knew how to work with his hands and make tents but he also was academically schooled under one of the greatest of the Jewish rabbis of his time, the man named Gamaliel. He moved easily among Gentiles and Jews, pagans and religious people, princes and paupers, scholars and servants. Saul was chosen and prepared by God. Ananias needs to get over his prejudice and his fears, and he needs to recognize that God can change even the vilest sinner, even the most violent person, God can change them. Ironically, the biggest persecutor of Christians is about to become one of the greatest evangelists of Christianity. But also he'll become the most persecuted of Christians because God also predicts that he'll suffer many things for the sake of Jesus. Verse 17 and Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, you got to love this. What did he say? Brother Saul. Isn't that beautiful? What a token of God's grace. How encouraging it was for Ananias to say, Brother Saul. Ananias' acceptance of Saul as his brother affirmed the Lord's forgiveness. And this is what fellowship does. This is what our fellowship with each other does. When we treat each other as brothers and sisters, even say it to each other, we, the recognition solidifies our identity in Christ. When you call me brother, it's easier to believe that I am a brother indeed. And then Ananias tells him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Saul is a brother, but yet he hasn't been filled with the Spirit. He has the Spirit in him, but he doesn't have the Spirit. He hasn't come upon him. Again, a Christian can be indwelled by the Spirit and not be filled with the Spirit. As with the case of the Samaritans, the baptism of the Spirit occurred subsequent to his conversion. Here Ananias prays, and immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. The light that blinded Saul may have caused an infection that scabbed over his eyes. And this was likely a reoccurring condition that plagued Paul the rest of his life. It's interesting that when he went to Galatia on his first missionary journey, later he wrote back to the Galatians and he said, that they loved him so much that they would have given him their own eyes. The idea being that Paul's eyes had 
failed him there in Galatia, and that they would have, they would have given their own eyes to him if, if need be. Some folks believe that Paul's eye infection that resulted during his conversion or happened during his conversion was Paul's thorn in the flesh that he speaks of in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Greek word translated thorn, it means dagger or stake. A person with trachoma develops pus over the eye that causes the eyelashes to become brittle. And at times they actually dig into the eyeball. It feels like a thorn in the eye. Verse 19. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. He'd been fasting these three days. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples of Damascus. Immediately he preached to Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called him this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. How amazing. Rabbi Saul is now using his knowledge of the scriptures to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Christianity's chief antagonist has suddenly become its main proponent. Most New Testament scholars slip Galatians chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 between verses 21 and 22 here to get the chronology of Paul's early ministry. In Galatians, Paul tells us that after his conversion... I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. Apparently after Saul's conversion, he left Damascus and he spent some time privately rethinking his theology. Some folks believe that Saul retreated to the desert, possibly Mount Sinai, to reconcile the work of Christ with what was written in the Old Testament about the Messiah. On the Damascus road, Jesus revealed himself to Saul. Now in solitude, Jesus will reveal himself in Saul. You know, it's good to take what we learn and ask the Lord to make it personal, isn't it? Paul later wrote of the gospel, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul got the crucial elements of his faith, not from a school or from a podcast or from a teacher, but from the Lord himself. At the end of verse 22, Saul was winning arguments, but not souls. He had the right message, but he had the wrong audience. He had yet to target the Gentiles. We're told now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. The Jewish hit squad staked out an ambush by the gate. That's when the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. What a letdown for Saul. Literally. He loved the Jews, but he had failed to reach them with the gospel. I guess you could say at this point in his ministry, Saul was a real basket case. 
What a humiliating way, though, for this once proud rabbi to have to depart from Damascus in a basket, an escape, at night, over a wall. It's interesting. He fit in a basket. This meant that Saul apparently was not a big man. He fit into a basket. There's actually a third century novel. It's entitled The Acts of Paul and Thecla that give us a physical description of the Apostle Paul. Let me read it to you. He was small in size with meeting eyebrows. It was like a big caterpillar running across his forehead. With a rather large nose, ball-headed, bow-legged, strongly built, full of grace, for at times he looked like a man, and at times he had the face of an angel. You know, and I like that. Because you remember what they said of Stephen in chapter 6, verse 15, that he had the face of an angel. Saul now radiates the same glory that he had witnessed in, in Stephen. I think that's, that's so beautiful. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. And they did not believe that he was a disciple. And who could blame them? I mean, he had been the arch enemy of the church. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. This name Barnabas means son of encouragement. Barnabas was filled with grace. He looked past Paul's failures, and he focused on his potential. It's no accident that Barnabas was the believer who welcomed Saul into the church of Jerusalem. He interceded for him. And so Saul was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. Remember, Stephen, too, was a Hellenist. He was a Jew who had adopted Greek culture. And it seems that Saul here is trying to take up where Stephen had left off. Perhaps he still felt guilt over Stephen's death, and he wanted to assume Stephen's mission. Saul has yet to embrace his own calling. But they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Another letdown for Saul. We know from other scriptures that Saul spent the next seven years in his hometown of Tarsus, perhaps feeling like a failure. He had been unsuccessful in reaching the Jews in either city, in Damascus or in Jerusalem. Understand, fruitful ministry takes the right man at the right place at the right time. Saul was God's man, but it wasn't yet God's place. And it wasn't God's time. Saul was trying to minister for God, but this was a time in which God wanted to minister to Saul. Soon, Saul will find success, but not among the Jews, among the Gentiles. Verse 31, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. The church's chief antagonist had been converted, and the church now experiences a period of peace and prosperity, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit 
they were multiplied. The church began to grow. 